and uh, it's a particular pleasure to be able to come for a few Sundays like this, and also to have your service at a really civilized time at four o'clock in the afternoon. So all in all, it, it's a pleasure for me to be with you uh, this evening. Uh, I have two things I want to say before we begin. One, I'm probably flogging a dead horse, but I've brought some more copies of my book. Um, thank you for being so kind as uh, purchasing and taking some copies last week, but I brought some more just in case. Um, this book sells for eight ninety nine, but uh, I only charge £5, and if you've come without £5, don't worry, just take one, or if you're a student or a pensioner, just take one, that's the kind of deal. So the book is there for anybody who missed it last week. Now the second thing I want to say is that, um, as it may not appear from that uh, heading there, Tonight's message is an election special, and uh, I want to say one or two things that are not, un not unconnected, let me put it at that level, not unconnected with uh, this week in our country. Um, I was brought up uh, amongst Christians who actually didn't believe that it was right to vote. That's quite odd, really, because, um, but that was quite widely held. Um, and I think the reason for that was that there was a feeling that our citizenship, according to Paul, is in heaven, and therefore we didn't need to be concerned with uh, what happened in this world. Uh, that was a, a rather kind of, um, what's the word I'm looking for, a kind of exclusive, kind of separatist view. And actually, if you, if you were to read passages in the New Testament, like Romans 13, you know, Paul says, the powers that be are ordained of God, um, and uh, he encourages the Christians to obey the authorities, to play their part in society. And so, some years ago, quite a number of years ago, I changed my mind about this, and I decided that the Christian duty in a democracy is to play a full part in your society as you are able, and of course, that would include voting. But of course, the British uh, do preserve the right for people not to vote, and that's quite important too. It's important for people to decide that they're not voting in a democracy. In Australia, you would get fined for that. Um, but uh, in this country, you have the right to vote or not to vote. And so many of us will probably cast our vote this coming week. I, I, I think I maybe feel a wee bit depressed that over the last few weeks, I have quite a keen interest in politics, but I've, stopped, I've really stopped listening to it because I find it frustrating. It is so petty and so bitter that I've had enough of it, um, but I will vote. And uh, it is interesting that as Christians, we have been permitted to live in a democracy. Now, I think many people take their democracy for granted. We don't understand what a precious thing it is. Around the end of the Second World War, there was really only a handful of countries in the world that were democracies. There was, I can't remember the figure, but it was less than 20. But by the end of the 1960s, uh, and by the end of the 1980s after the collapse of the Soviet Union, I think the number of democracies in the world today is, I, I, it might be touching 100. It's quite interesting that democracy has taken root in the modern world. Winston Churchill once said that democracy is a terrible way to run a country. The only thing you can say about it is that it's better than all the alternatives. And there, there is good sense in that because uh, democracy has its weaknesses, um, but it's far and away in a fallen world 
the best way of running a society other than a theocracy. And so tonight we're going to look at, again at David's, uh, the King David in Israel. Now, that was a very special form of government, a theocracy. Now, you get that in some Islamic countries where the mullahs rule the country. And I'm, I don't think people are queuing up to get into these countries. Some of them are queuing up to get out of them. Um, but the model of government that we have in Israel in the Old Testament is that of a theocracy. Um, where the people covenanted themselves to God and to His law. Now, in a sense, the uh, Israeli society was bowing to the rule of law, which underpins our democracy. We bow to the rule of law. Nobody is above the law, except the queen, I think. Nobody is above the law. And in, in the Old Testament, uh, the agreement was that the king and the prophets would lead the people in living under the law of God, and that, that was a, a theocracy, which worked well and sometimes not so well, um, but here we are in a democracy, and we have a lot to thank God for. And so, I think that it is important that this week that we not only think seriously about our civic duty, I'm not encouraging you to vote if you're not inclined to vote, but I, do, I would encourage you to pray, and uh, I would encourage you to think carefully about the future of our country, because there are some very significant issues uh, at stake. There's the obvious issue, which I'll say a little bit about, about our relationship with Europe. But there is also the issue as to whether people would want to see the United Kingdom broken up. Now, some people have described the United Kingdom as the most success successful political alliance in the history of the planet. And certainly for 300 years, it has worked reasonably well. But this is a moment when people are wondering if it should continue. So, these are not trivial things. And, you know, I saw something in the paper just yesterday that made me think, or it might have been today, which is a terrible confession. It means I've been reading a Sunday paper. Um, I have a story about that, which I think I'll share with you. In 1948, Billy Graham and Cliff Barrows and their wives came to Scotland Billy Graham was working for the Youth for Christ, and they came to Aberdeen, and they were staying with a man I knew called Mark Connell, who went to Hebron Hall in Aberdeen. And uh, Billy Graham and his son Cliff and their wives were coming to the breaking of bread, and there was this delicate negotiation to get Billy Graham's wife and Cliff Barrow's wives to wear hats, uh, because it would have been a bit of a problem if they'd turned up in 1948 at the Brethren Hall, Hebron Hall, without hats. And so, with some negotiation, the women agreed to wear hats, and uh, everything went well at the breaking of bread until at the end of the breaking of bread, um, Hebron Hall, as you may remember, was in a, it wasn't a site, it was in a fairly busy street. So as they spill out onto the pavement, Billy Graham walks straight across the road into the newsagent and buys the Sunday newspaper. Now, this was 1948. This was a kind of a measure of how far Americans were ahead of the British. Um, so uh, forgive me. But uh, there was an interesting. Uh, there was an interesting piece in it. I usually, get, I usually collect it on Monday. That's my excuse. And my other excuse is I have a friend who's actually in Riverside in Ayr who used to be a sports reporter for a Sunday newspaper. And I once gently raised with him to find as a Christian any conflict writing for a Sunday paper. And he said, no, no, it's Monday's paper that would be the problem because Monday's paper's printed on Sunday. So Sunday's paper's printed on Saturday, so it's all fine. I think I'm struggling here. Um, <laughs> anyway, the article was quite a serious article saying, now I'm beginning to understand how the Holocaust happened. And it caught my attention 
because one of the things I think that we think is unthinkable is how a civilized country like Germany could have got involved in the destruction of the Jewish people. And this article was saying the rise of anti-Semitism in our country makes me understand how it starts, how a group of people are vilified. And there are various groups of people that are vilified for one reason or another, and Christians have experienced that throughout history. And to some extent, experience it in our country. There's a degree of intellectual persecution of Christians. And this lady was saying in her article as journalist, now I understand how the Holocaust, how the Holocaust, start, how the Holocaust happened. It starts with the vilification of a group of people. So these are all very critical issues, and I'm sure you're thinking about them, and you'll do your Christian duty in due course. Let's look at 2 Samuel 15. And, and this is a study of um, civic and political life, and, and uh, it's quite a salutary passage. So let's read together 2 Samuel 15 from verse 1. In the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses and with 50 men to run ahead of him. He would get up early and stand by the side of the, of the road leading to the city gate. And when anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, Absalom would call out to him, what town are you from? And he would answer, your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, look, your claims are valid and proper, but there is no representative of the king to hear you. And Absalom would add, if only I were appointed judge in the land, then everyone who has a complaint or case would come to me, and I would see that he receives justice. Also, whenever anyone approached him to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. And Absalom behaved in this way towards all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice. And so he stole the hearts of the men of Israel." At the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, let me go to Hebron and fulfill a vow I have made to the Lord. And while your servant was living at Geshur and Aram, I made this vow. If the Lord takes me back to Jerusalem, I will worship the Lord in Hebron. And the king said to him, go in peace. So he went to Hebron. Then Absalom sent secret messengers throughout the tribes of Israel to say, as soon as you hear the sound of trumpets, then say, Absalom is king in Hebron. And 200 men from Jerusalem had accompanied Absalom, and they had been invited as guests and went quite innocently, knowing nothing about the matter. And while Absalom was offering sacrifices, he also sent for Ahithophel, the Gileonite, David's counselor, to come from Giloah, his hometown. And so this conspiracy gained strength, and Absalom's following kept on increasing. And a messenger came and told David, the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. Then David said to all his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, come, we must flee, or none of us will escape from Absalom. And so what follows is that David uh, leaves Jerusalem um, because of the uh, coup by Absalom. And there follows a series of chapters in which there is war and strife within Israel. And when you come to chapter 18, um, the king's forces under Joab have prevailed, and uh, the king, verse 5 of, of 2 Samuel 18 says, the king commanded Joab, Abishai, and Ittai, be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. But they had no intention of being gentle with Absalom, and down in verse 9, uh, Absalom is riding in pursuit, or he's running, he's riding away from the forces against him, 
and his head got caught in a tree, and he was left hanging in midair while the mule he was riding kept on going. And when you come further down the, the chapter, um, Joab, uh, verse 15, Job, Joab's armor bearers surrounded Absalom, struck him, and killed him. And Joab sounded the trumpet, and the troops stopped pursuing Israel, for Joab halted them. And they took Absalom, threw him into a big pit in the forest, and piled up a large heap of rocks over him. And then you come to the end of chapter 18 to verse 33, and you have David's terrible wail about his son, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died instead of you, Oh, Absalom, my son my son. So, may God bless to us the reading of these uh, rather sad and somewhat tragic passages of Scripture. Now, there are three players in this drama. The first is David, who is the sovereign. Uh, the second is Absalom, his son. And you'll notice that this artist's impressions of Absalom uh, give him this incredible head of hair uh, this was one of the reasons that Absalom was so attractive, um, and this is what got him into trouble. I'm certainly not going to get into that kind of trouble, um, but uh, it was the locks of his hair that caught in the branches of the tree and were ultimately his uh, undoing. And then thirdly, there is Joab, uh, Joab the soldier. And these three characters come together in this story, the king, the king's son, and I suppose Joab, in modern parlance, would be described as his chief of staff. He was certainly the head of the army, um, and he was the man who, in this case, and as in other cases, quelled uh, the rebellion and brought an end of Absalom's rebellion. Now, we have been involved over the last three years in a very intense debate. I, you know, I, I heard yesterday of a young friend who many years ago had set up a business and had done extremely well, and in the last few months, his business has almost collapsed. And uh, the reason for it was the uncertainty surrounding Brexit had meant that the companies he dealt with were not prepared to um, make any contracts at this time until it was settled, and the outcome for him is that his business is in serious trouble. And it kind of highlights the difference between people that get things done, that is, people that run businesses, and people that talk about getting things done, which is our politicians. And it certainly has been a very serious three years in which there has been something of a stalemate in our government, and this has all kinds of repercussions. We can only hope that, in some sense, we'll get through this and get it sorted. But uh, some time ago, I was having a chat with some Christian friends and I was saying to them, you know, this is not unlike what happened in the time of Oliver Cromwell, because in the time of Oliver Cromwell, Parliament and the people found themselves in different places. Um, Parliament was on the side of the king, King Charles, um, and King Charles and the Parliament found themselves at odds uh, with the mind of the people. And indeed, that is what led to the English Civil War, in which Cromwell and his armies prevailed, and for a time uh, the monarch was executed, um, and the country was run as a republic, but the British people, who have a great love of monarchy, after Cromwell brought the monarchy back again. 
But that war with Cromwell, and if you go to the House of Parliament, you'll see, you'll see um, Cromwell's statue outside. Many people recognize that uh, Cromwell was one of the great characters of English and British history. And many people would say that it was Cromwell who gave us our democracy, who established the supremacy of Parliament over the king. And so the tension that arose between the king and the people, the original Parliament and the people, was resolved by Cromwell so that, so that the Parliament became the voice of the people. And that's what led to a constitutional monarchy of the type that we have today. And I just happened to say, I said, you know, this kind of thing in the 17th century led to civil war, but of course, that's not what's going to happen here. And then I was very surprised by one of the people who was there, a former policeman, actually, who said, I wouldn't be so sure. And I thought, what? He said, I wouldn't be so sure that this doesn't lead to civil war. He said, the possibility of unrest and of, of civil unrest is a very real thing. Because when a majority of people feel that their views are not being heard or not being attended to, that is the seedbed of violence. Because if your vote doesn't, then maybe your force will. And we had a kind of interesting discussion. Now, I don't actually think that that would happen in this country. Although I noticed just a number of weeks ago that a research project at the University of Cardiff found that both leavers and remainers believed that violence would be worth it if it meant that their views prevailed. Now, can you believe that? There are actually a body of people who say, given the stalemate, if it takes violence to sort this out, then so be it. Now, I still don't think that's going to happen, but to find online and in the press an article based on research done by a university that people were saying in circumstances like this they wouldn't rule out violence is a rather terrifying thing to contemplate. That's something else you should include in your prayers. And so, here we have an example in the Old Testament of a desperate period in the history of Israel. Actually, this is unimaginable. I'm saying that civil war is unimaginable in our time. I think it is. But David would have said the same thing. It is unimaginable that at this period in Israel's history, they would have landed in a time of brutal civil war. Some people say there are no wars more awful or more brutal than civil wars. And our history of Northern Ireland, I think, teaches a little bit about that. But remember, this happens about a thousand years before Christ, around about the year 1000 BC, not long after David's coronation, not long after what we were thinking about last week, the settling of David in Jerusalem, the settling of the people, the Jebusites defeated, Jerusalem becomes the holy city, and the nation is settled at last. And they look back over many hundreds of years of history to see the promises of God and Abraham at last fulfilled, that they come into the land, they have their own land, their own capital city, and they're settled under King David, and a period of peace prevails, excuse me, across Israel. But in relatively short order, that peace is And it's disturbed in a way that nobody saw coming. Because what happens is that Absalom, David's son, endears himself to the people in a way that becomes a conspiracy, and within a relatively short time, begins to install himself 
as a better sovereign than his father David, and this leads to a brutal civil war in which many thousands of Israelites were killed. An unbelievable turn of events. And I think students of history would say that in many cases, the terrible things that happened were unforeseen and unexpected, and nobody could have imagined that such a thing would have happened. And here we are. David's throne is almost toppled by his own son, Absalom. Now, there are two records of uh, the rebellion of Absalom, uh, one that we've read from in Samuel uh, and Kings, but actually it's interesting that the, the, the second record of the history of Israel, the book of Chronicles, doesn't mention this episode. I, I, when I was reading this and thinking about it, what came into my mind, one of the things that came into my mind was, there are people today who claim that the Bible is largely a work of fiction, uh, who claim that the stories of the Bible are made up many hundreds of years later by people who are trying to promote a point of view. And when you read a passage like this, and you read other passages in the Bible, you say to yourself, if you were making this up, you wouldn't make it up this way. I mean, you wouldn't tell the story like this. It's a bit like telling the story of Peter's denial of Christ. If you're, if you're trying to promote Peter as the head of the church hundreds of years after it happened, you wouldn't have written it the way it did. And of course, the more you look at Scripture, the more you realize that what you're reading is an actual historical account, warts and all. And this is a passage with lots of warts on it, and it's one of these incidental evidences of the authenticity of Holy Scripture. So, Samuel deals in, his, in, this, in, these, in this writing with high politics. So, we're dealing with high politics this week in Britain, high politics. But then we're also dealing with family tensions. I'm told that some families can hardly speak to each other because of Brexit. It's not a problem in our house. I just make everybody listen to what I think. But uh, this is a story about high politics and family tension. But it's also a story about personal ambition. And, of course, it's very difficult to separate uh, personal ambition from uh, high politics. So, these chapters are about very real issues. They're about personality. They're about potential. They're about power. They're about morality, about mischief, about manipulation, and about murder. And this is the kind of story that we find in these chapters of Samuel. Now, there's a verse in Galatians 6 that we know very well, Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. And what we see in these three characters are three facets of human experience. One is you see David, an exceptional character, described as a man after God's own heart, a man whose heart was in the right place, but a man who had very real and very clear and very obvious weaknesses. And you see David at a time when his judgment is faltering and when he provides to his family and to his nation a very mixed example. One of the things about this election campaign that I find particularly unedifying is the level of scrutiny of individual politicians' personal lives. Now, some of them are not very attractive. Others are very colorful. Um, and I agree that there's a, a, an element of having confidence in an individual. But once you start raking over 
the, the facets of an individual's life, you'll find all sorts of stuff that you'd wish you hadn't known. And then it begins to highlight maybe features of your own life that if you were in the spotlight, you would need to worry about. And so this happens to people who are prominent. And so David, at the height of his powers, shows a degree of faltering and sets a very mixed example. Absalom, on the other hand, and in this sense, he's almost got the spirit of our age, a sense of real injustice. Everything is wrong with this country. If only I could be in power, I would sort it all for you. And there's that tone in our election too, across the parties, a sense of injustice and a sense of entitlement. Because he's the favored son, he feels he's entitled to something better than he has. I'm told that one of the challenges of being a member of the royal family, and I suppose we've had this rather brutally exposed in recent weeks, is that if you're not the king or the queen, who are you exactly? And what's your role if you're what they call a minor royal? Well, here's Absalom. He's a kind of minor royal, and there's this sense of frustration and this sense of entitlement. And then you have Joab. Now, Joab's the cool customer. Joab is the guy who understands self-preservation like nothing else. What, what matters to Joab is that I remain commander of the army, and Joab is the man that typically would sell his own grandmother or probably kill her if it kept him in his post. So, you have this striking combination of people, a faltering king and, uh, and a very ambitious son and uh, a man who knows how to survive in almost all circumstances. So, let's take a look at these three people just one at a time. So, first of all, uh, David, and I'm going to call David the ambivalent sovereign. Ambivalent means not quite able to make up your mind. This is a feature that uh, runs in, to some extent in my life. But uh, David as king, this is, a, this is a characteristic that would kill you. To be king of a nation and to be ambivalent about some key issues is certainly the way to destruction. To try and remain neutral when you're at the height of your power is a rather dangerous kind of game. But he's at the height of his power technically. We were looking at 2 Samuel 7 last week. This is a golden age. This is the age of Jerusalem. And entrusted to David, though he couldn't build the temple, as we saw last week, is the promise of God that his family will be preserved, and the promise of God that his greater son, the Messiah, will come from the line of David. Um, and then there's a sense, too, in David of God's calling and his guidance, the shepherd, the poet, the musician, an individual who was creative, diplomatic, determined, a man after God's own heart. But the other thing about David, and this is true of all of us, is that we are, all of us, essentially flawed. We're all flawed individuals in one way or another. Of course, we don't like to portray our flaws or talk about them, although some preachers do, but I don't. But I, I know my weaknesses, and I know where my flaws are. And David, has, like all of us, had flaws. Um, and one of the encouraging things, David did some desperate things that you wouldn't believe. I mean, I don't think David would get in the meeting, frankly, you know. But uh, the things that David did are desperate. And yet, he's a man whom God recognized whose spiritual instincts were correct. And he was a man whom God forgave for his sins. So, if you're worried about your weaknesses and your sins and your flaws, then confess them to the Lord and believe that if we confess our sin 
God is willing and just to forgive us our sins, and don't let your weaknesses bog you down. If David can do this and be forgiven, then so can you, and so can I. And that's a very powerful message. But there was one flaw that David had that many men have, and that is that David had an absolutely cavalier attitude towards the opposite sex. He had a cavalier attitude to women. Now, this kind of comes with the territory. Uh, if you're the king, if you're powerful, and many powerful men have found this to be their downfall, there's something attractive about a man who's in charge. And very often, men who are in charge find themselves having attitudes towards the opposite sex that they think they're entitled to do what they like because of their power. Uh, an unhealthy attitude towards women is often exacerbated by popularity and by power. And there are two incidents in David's life that really lead to this problem. The first was that when you go back to 2 Samuel 3, <clears throat> you find that there were sons born to David, um, and David's third son, Absalom, was the son of a woman called Macha, M-A-A-C-H, Macha. I don't know how to pronounce that. Anyway, that was, that was her name. And she was the daughter of Talmai, the king of Geshur. Now, did David forget? Did David forget that God had said, don't marry the women of pagan nation? Did he forget that? How, how did that come about? So, here you have David um, marrying a woman who was clearly beyond the boundaries of Israel, and that was not what the Lord expected of the king of Israel. And he also shows a strange disregard for the law of the Lord on polygamy in Deuteronomy 17, because he had several wives, not half as many as Solomon had eventually. He had nearly a thousand. So, what happened about the law of polygamy? So, you see, there's this kind of there's this kind of lax attitude towards these matters that were clearly not in line with God's original intention. Was he affected by the surrounding culture of Canaan? Was he affected by his prosperity? Um, did he relax when he became king? And he sets a very poor example to his family and to his nation. Indeed, we read about David's concubines. So, that's when I say he wouldn't get into the meeting. I mean, there's, there's stuff here that you know, it would blow your brains but this is just part of David's life, um, and, and it's, it's very difficult to understand. And, of course, the issue here is that Absalom grows up in this rather ambivalent context, and so he begins to think, you know, if my dad can do what he likes, then I can do what I like, which is why the role models set by fathers in their families are so critical now, mothers set great examples and care for their children, but fathers have a particular role model, especially for boys. And in this area, David is found lacking. And then, of course, the second sin of David, the one that we know most of all, 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12, is his adultery with Bathsheba, which becomes almost inexplicable that uh, he sees this very attractive woman, this very attractive woman may have made, put herself in a position that David was going to notice her, who knows, but the responsibility is David's. He sees this very attractive woman, and he decides he wants to have her, and he does, and so he is guilty of adultery, and not only adultery, but he arranges for her husband, an honorable man, to be killed in battle. So, he becomes guilty of murder. 
This is breathtaking stuff. In fact, reading some of the commentaries on this, uh, I noticed that somebody worked out that David actually broke five of the Ten Commandments. I had a wee bit difficulty counting them all, but clearly there's adultery and there's murder and there's covetousness and there's taking your neighbor's wife. So there's four. I haven't quite got the fifth one, but this, this was a terrible catalogue of sins. And in 2 Samuel 12 verse 9, um, Nathan says, why do, why do you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You st- struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your, own, from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says, out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity upon you. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And when you read a psalm like, for example, Psalm 51, in better days for David, you find this heart-rending confession of David when he recognizes what he has done. Now, the Lord forgives us our sins, but there are consequences to actions that we have to live with. And David has to live with the consequences of his sin in this area, particularly the sin he committed with Bathsheba um, uh, and, and Uriah. So, power corrupts. It was an English lord who said, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And every stage of our lives, I know it's hard to draw a, a parallel between you and I and King David, but the lesson is there. We need to be careful at every stage in our life to practice holiness and to practice Christian morality and not to fiddle around with things around the edges that seem to be unimportant, not to be relaxed about relationships that are forbidden to us, and to honor the Lord and His Word and the call of Christ at every stage in our lives. Because not only only will we damage ourselves, but we may very well damage our families. And that's what David had to learn. And the example that David set to Absalom, ambivalence in sexual matters. Uh, He was going to reap a terrible harvest, and that's what we've read about today when Absalom comes to power. So, let's think for a moment or two about Absalom. Absalom has this quality of uh, arrogance, sense of entitlement and a sense of arrogance. Now, there is an incident in Absalom's life that goes some way to explain this, What happened was that David's firstborn son, Ammon, violated Absalom's sister, his uh, stepsister, Tamar. And uh, Absalom brings about the death of his stepbrother, Ammon, because of his actions. And in so doing, he incurs the wrath of David, his father. You'll find that in 2 Samuel verses 1 to 18. And Absalom has to flee to Geshur. Now, this is a complicated kind of issue. Ammon the son violates his half-sister, who was Absalom's blood sister, um, and Absalom resents Ammon, resents that David doesn't deal with it and deals with it himself. And this brings into the family uh, this uh, terrible um, tension. And so, Absalom is exiled. He was three years exiled from Jerusalem, banished for another two years, but then eventually David brings Absalom back And Absalom, with this bitterness in his heart and this sense of entitlement, begins a plot against the throne. Now, the plot is interesting, and this goes on over and over again. 
This plot of Absalom is that he sits himself at the gate of the city, and when somebody comes with a complaint, Absalom says, what's your problem? And they tell him, and he said, now, if I was king, I could sort that out. I could sort that out if I was the king. Um, if I was judging the land, your claims are valid and proper, and you need to have me in power to get them sorted. Now, this, is a, this has kind of, I don't, I don't want to be political here, but this has kind of echoes of the election, you know. This, do you know, why are we such a discontented nation? How does it come about? I mean, this is, my little book is called Born in a Golden Age. There hasn't been a better age than the one we live in. Now, I know there are people who are poor, and I know there are people who are hungry, um, and, and I know that there are people who struggle. I'm not, I'm not trying to minimize that. But relative to the majority of people in the world, this is a golden age. And yet, you would think that this country of ours is the worst country in the world, where everybody is stealing from everybody else, and if only, if only others could get into power, they would solve all these problems. That's the way politicians all operate. The ones that are in power are saying, just keep us in power and we'll do even better. Uh, this is a very strange thing. However, there's a very sinister thing to this, because discontent is a very powerful political instrument. And you see it here. What happens here is we're told in verse 6 that Absalom stole the hearts of the people of Israel. I mean, if you're a poor soul in Israel making your way up with a mule and your wife and your children to Jerusalem to complain about somebody that's pinched your land, and you go to the king, and the king's job is to sort that out, and you find Absalom, this handsome-looking guy with the long hair, you know, have a cup of tea and sit down and tell me, well, it probably wasn't tea, but whatever it was, and just, you know, if I was in power, you'd, your quid would be in, and it didn't take long before the people say, yeah, Absalom's the man we need here and uh, it has devastating consequences. Now, I came across something recently that I was completely unaware of. I came across a thing called the Frankfurt School. That's not a high school. This is a school of philosophers in the 1930s that established themselves in the German town of Frankfurt. And what they did was they began to look at how a communist philosophy could be developed in the West, because they had pretty well worked out it was they working in Russia, and there had to be another way of, of projecting this in the West. You look this up on the internet, and it's fascinating, fascinating uh, that, um, uh, how this is done. But one of, the, one, of the, um, one of the things that they major on, and this is what a communist philosophy has always done, is to sow discontent in the population make people discontent with what they have. They believed that the West's cultural leaders could be bamboozled into making their own civilization stink. And uh, they talk about um, how, they could, how the world's poor needs to be helped, and they shouldn't be oppressed by the rich. And all of this goes on to kind of promote a kind of international communism. Um, this meant relentlessly criticizing, listen to this, fathers, as transmitters of prejudice, and Christianity, democracy, and capitalism as oppressive to women, blacks, and the poor. The school also introduced Lenin's idea of political correctness to kill free speech and to promote sexual license by free love. Now, this was in the 1930s. And, of course, the, the impact of this, which is often unnoticed in society, is 
that people, particularly in the West, become incredibly discontented with the democratic system. We are in danger as a country of slipping into a kind of totalitarianism. You, certain things you can't say. We're all guilty of it. I mean, I even hear myself saying, well, I'm going to say something that's not politically correct. Why shouldn't I say it? Because we believe in free speech. This idea that you shut down any view other than your own. And this is having the effect around the world of many of the long-term aims of international Marxism. They include weakening the traditional family, promoting mother-led families, making schools teach homosexuality and marital sex as normal, undermining traditional moral authority in schools and churches, making religion social, dumbing down state education in the media, promoting change, and encouraging benefit dependency. Now, you might think that's extreme, but when I read this, I thought, wow, I hadn't noticed this. And yet, I do find myself wondering how it is that we have such a tide of discontent. So much so that political debate now on television and generally can barely be civil. People can barely be civil to each other. The idea that individual responsibility, that wealth creation is what gives us what we have, is derided. And the people that are in power are responsible for the deaths of hundreds of people and all the people in the street are your fault, not their fault, your fault, I know these are complex problems, but this tide of discontent, and this is what Absalom did. Absalom eventually won the hearts of the people. He promotes civil war with disastrous consequences, and I think the lesson for us as Christians is that we need to learn to seek God's will in our life and to pursue His will in our life, to be, as the New Testament says, content with such things as we have to be concerned about those who need us and need our help, to be kind to the poor and the dispossessed, but to work with our own hands, to be content with what God has given us, and to be thankful in our lives. If ever people should be thankful, it's the people of Britain in the 21st century, but that's not the feeling you get, and that's not the feeling you get, you'll get over this week. Anyway, think about it. I may be, over, I may be exaggerating slightly, but exaggeration is a good way to make a point. No, it's not. So, we come lastly to Joab, and here's another character, um, a really ambitious soldier. The first mention of Joab is in 2 Samuel 2, verses 12 to 17. He led David's army to victory in the war with Saul. He slew Abner. Um, he probably became, probably because Abner's newfound loyalty to David threatened Joab's position and career. And after taking the Jebusite stronghold of what became Jerusalem, Joab becomes commander-in-chief of the army, skillful general um, who assisted the establishment of the Davidic monarchy. But his character was a strange mixture. He was an absolutely ruthless man. And his ruthlessness is seen in the case of Absalom because Absalom says, David says, please be gentle with Absalom. David didn't want Absalom killed. He wanted them defeated, but not killed. But Joab just doesn't listen to David, and Joab engineers the brutal murder of Absalom, which he almost certainly deserved, but, but David didn't want that, and he's murdered and thrown into a pit. Um, that's what Joab did, and you have this terrible cry from David for his son Absalom, whom he had lost in the most awful of circumstances. 
I've met a few hatchet men. I used to think that local government had more than their fair share of them, but that's being a bit unkind. Um, but you meet the odd hatchet man, the guy, who, the guy who seems to know, above everything else, how to preserve his own position. Doesn't always produce much, but knows how to preserve his own position. Who's always on the right side of any argument. Who's always close to the boss, uh, and who's expert at undermining people. I've met people like that, and they're profoundly unpleasant, and you need to, if you, have, if you happen to know any of them, give them a wide berth. But I once met a hatchet man. His name was Charles Colson. Charles Colson, who was Rod, um, Richard Nixon's legal attorney, right-hand man to the president. I heard him speak after his conversion in Albert Hall Stirling a whole bunch of years ago, and I think I would say to this day, he is the most able speaker I ever listened to. It was thrilling to listen to him talking about his conversion to Christ, his life in the White House, his conversion to Christ, and how, after he had been himself in prison, uh, established Prison Fellowship International, one or two of his books, and uh, a book of his daily readings, which I still use to this day. But he was a hatchet man. He was in the Marines. Well, you don't, you, you need a, at least a small hatchet to get into the Marines. And uh, he excelled in the Marines, then became a lawyer, and then became counsel to Richard Nixon. And I remember him saying on that occasion, he said, we used to meet in the White House every morning at seven o'clock with the president uh, to uh, sort out the affairs of the country and the world. And he made this incredible statement. He said, we thought we were running the world, and the truth is we couldn't even run our own lives, which was an interesting confession. And then, of course, Watergate happened. Um, he had broken the law. He was uh, tried, was waiting for sentence to go to jail. And he goes to a man's house that he knew, a man called Tom Phillips, a businessman. And Tom Phillips had recently been converted at a Billy Graham crusade meeting. And Phillips tells Colson about his conversion and prays with him and gives him a copy of C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity and says, Chuck, this is what you need. And Charles Colson tells how he left that house that evening, a broken man waiting for sentence, goes into his car and sits and couldn't move and sits and weeps over his condition. He says, over the next few days, I came to realize by reading C.S. Lewis's book, I came to realize that Christianity is for real. I came to see that Christ is my Savior who died for my sins, and I opened my heart and I received Christ in. It was a powerful conversion. And when I heard them speak, I was, I was entirely thrilled by listening to him. And uh, God can save hatchet men. He did with, with Charles Colson. He was the fixer. You know, Nixon would simply say about someday that he's worried about get rid of him. Uh, that didn't mean murder him, but just get rid of him. And before the guy had got his coat off, he was out the door and his pass was revoked. That was Colson. And that was Joab. Joab was an ambitious soldier who knew how to deal with people and sort it out. But of course, as with all hatchet men, they come up against an even stronger hatchet man. And at the end of Joab's life, you discover that Joab himself found himself on the wrong side of Solomon. And Solomon sends another hatchet man to sort him out, and Joab is killed. You can read about that in 1 Kings chapter 2. Now, you're not hatchet people, I'm sure. So what's the lesson from a hatchet man? Well, the lesson from a hatchet man is that we all have ambition. But the important thing is to use our ambition properly in the service of the Lord. Ambition of itself is a good thing. The desire to do better, the desire to achieve, 
The desire to be useful is an important thing. And in the New Testament, there are several verses about this. One, Romans 15, 20 says, it has always been my ambition, this is Paul, to preach Christ where he is not known and not build on another's foundation. Now, Paul was an ambitious man. He would have been a hatchet man in his day, but he became ambitious for the kingdom of Christ. Galatians 5.20 says, avoid selfish ambition. Philippians 2 verse 3 says, do nothing out of selfish ambition. And there's a lovely passage in 1 Thessalonians 4, the chapter that we know as the great chapter of the coming again of Christ, but there's a, there's a short passage in it that's wonderful. This is what it says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business and to work with your hands so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anyone. So having your ambition under control and having your, ambitious, your ambition offered to the service of Christ is what we are called to do. So Joab, the hatchet man, teaches us that there is a kind of ambition that's destructive, but there is also a kind of ambition that glorifies God and extends the service and kingdom of Christ. Thank you for listening so well. Have a good week. Think about the election. Pray about it. Do what you feel led to do. In Ulster, they used to say, vote early, vote often, but of course that's not allowed. But uh, let's, let's do our duty this week. But most of all, let's pray for our country at what is a significant moment that God will overrule and that we will see His hand at work. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for giving us a feel in a passage for great matters of state, showing us the strengths of leaders, but also the dangers. And so at a moment in our country's history when once again we elect a government, we thank you for the freedoms we have. We thank you for the blessings that democracy has brought our country and many other countries. And we do pray that the democratic decision that this country makes this week will be wise. And we do pray, Lord, that you will bless those who are elected to office and that our country may prosper, that it may remain stable and peaceful. And we pray for those aspects of, our, of the life of our country that require attention. We do think of the poor and the dispossessed and the hungry. And we think of a complex web of problems that brings people into difficulty. We do ask that government will do their duty. But we pray that they may also know what the limits of their power are. And we ask for those of us who are committed to the work of the church and Christian agencies that we may too seize the opportunity to do good in the name of Christ and to bring the light of Christ into lives where there is deep darkness. May your blessing rest upon us now, and thank you for what is provided for us. We ask in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Now, next week we'll be back to the New Testament, and we'll do some Advent stuff, but uh, thanks for bearing with these two messages in Second Samuel.